are listening to the DJI podcast, a space to listen our online events, conversations, and seminars, hosted by the Transitional Justice Institute. The Transitional Justice Institute of Ulster University seminar on contemporary challenges to reproductive rights in the US courts. We are delighted to welcome our guest speaker on this very topical issue, Professor Rachel Boucher, Interim Dean of Temple University's BSD School of Law. We are very much looking forward to an interesting discussion um, following Professor Rabouche's talk also, and we are extremely grateful for her time this afternoon. Um, so we are going to follow Professor Rabouche's talk with a question and answer session, and we would very much warmly encourage you to please submit your questions using the chat function on Zoom, um, where my fellow co-chair and colleague, Dr. Joanna McMinn, will monitor and present your questions. Um, but firstly, may I please invite Professor Siobhan Wills, Director of the Transitional Justice Institute, to formally open our seminar, which is taking place as part of Northern Ireland Human Rights Festival. Thank you, Leah. I'm delighted to welcome you to this seminar organized by the Human Rights Consortium. Um, Professor Rubachet will discuss the recent challenges to reproductive rights that are currently being considered in the US courts. One of these challenges, as I'm sure you're aware, is a challenge to the Supreme Court's landmark decision of Rowan Wade on the right to choose to have an abortion or not, a decision that has stood for nearly 50 years. And all that issue of the right to abortion, to choose, the right to choose, as it was uh, referred to when I was, uh, when I was young, and I guess is still so, uh, it, to me is connected with other uh, rights uh, of uh, women re regarding uh, the right to have a child or not to have a child. Um, and it's connected, I think, not just with uh, the right to abortion, but what happened to uh, unmarried mothers uh, before their right to abortion was granted. So in the South and here in Northern Ireland, uh, many unmarried women uh, were incarcerated against their will in mother and baby homes. My own cousin was one of them and she committed suicide. If uh, in England, where I also grew up because my father is English, many of unmarried women were, uh, there were not so many incarcerated mother and baby homes, they were incarcerated in what used to be called uh, mental hospitals. And I know this because I worked for a number of years in what was called mental hospitals. And I know that many of the people in those hospitals never had any mental health illness at all. And my sister, uh, has done a lot of research on this because she because it's in our family and um, the fact that we had a, a cousin who committed suicide in the mother and baby home has affected our family and she has done a lot of research on what happened in mental health hospitals in England and one of those things was uh, a forcible abortion unmarried women were put into mental health hospitals mental hospitals as they were called in England and forced to have an abortion and then incarcerated for the rest of their lives. So this issue of the right to abortion is a critical issue for the individuals of uh, women who a right to choose to have to live their lives as they want to live, but is also a broader issue of discrimination against women and within a patriarchal society. And this threat to Rowan Wade to me is very disturbing. It stood for nearly 50 years. And I, as I see it, this pushback against equality rights for women is associated with a general pushback of rights 
that have been struggled for and gained since the mid 20th century, not just rights for women, but a whole body of rights related to inclusion and equality for all. Rights that pose challenges to long established privileges, challenges to patriarchy, challenges to the legacy of colonialism, challenges to entrenched racism, challenges to the legacy of slavery, and here in Ireland, challenges to the pushback against rights recognized in the Belfast Peace Agreement. The Transitional Justice Institute was established to support research and advocacy in the healing process of transitions from past authoritarian regimes or conflict-dominated contexts. Today, I think we also need to take on the challenge of new threats to human rights. New threats, one of those new threats is this pushback against rights that have been achieved or in the process of being achieved. And in that context, I think it's important that the TJI, in collaboration with other human rights institutes, centers and organizations work together to resist these pushbacks. And so for this and for so many other reasons, I'm delighted to welcome Dean Reboucher. The co-chairs of this event, Joanna McMinn and Leo Ray, will introduce Rachel. Joanna is a leading expert on women's human rights here in Northern Ireland, and she's also a lecturer in the TJI. And Leah is a PhD student in the TJI, and she also lectures here. Her work focuses on human rights standards in Northern Ireland in the context of devolution. So I'm going to hand you back now to Leah and to Joanna McMinn. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Professor Wills, for your introduction and very poignant remarks, um, as you've effectively set the scene with regards to the importance of legal recognition and protection of reproductive rights and ensuring access to reproductive rights and, and sexual health care, as well as, as you've noted, the ongoing and, and very stark challenges to reproductive rights, both internationally and domestically. So thank you. We are delighted today to welcome Professor Rachel Ruscha to speak on the matter of reproductive rights in the courts of the United States. Um, so just by way of background to Professor Ruscha, she is the Interim Dean of Temple University Beasley School of Law and the James E. Beasley Professor of Law. Prior to her appointment as Interim Dean, she was the Associate Dean for Research, a position she held from 2017 to 2021. She's also a Faculty Fellow at Temple Centre for Public Health Law Research. Dean Rouchet is a leading scholar in reproductive health law, feminist legal theory and family law. She is an author of Governance Feminism, an introduction and an editor of Governance Feminism, Notes from the Field. She's also the editor of Feminist Judgments, Family Law Opinions Rewritten, published by Cambridge University Press, and an author of the sixth edition of the case book, Family Law, with Professors Leslie Harris and June Carbone. In addition, she's also writing a book on reproductive health law that is under contract with NYU Press and editing a collection of essays for law and contemporary problems on the botanics health effects on issues in contract law. Dean Boucher has served as a co-investigator on two grant funded research projects related to reproductive health, one housed at the Emory University Rollins School of Public Health and another funded by the World Health Organization. Her recent, recent research also includes articles in law reviews and peer-reviewed journals on relational contracts, gestational surrogacy, prenatal genetic testing and genetic counselling. Dean Boucher holds a JD from Harvard Law School, an LLM from Queen's University Belfast and a BA from Trinity University. Prior to her studies at law school, she worked as a researcher for the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and the Human Rights Centre at Queen's University Belfast. And upon graduating from law school, Dean Boucher clerked for Justice Kate O'Regan on the Constitutional Court of South Africa and practiced law in Washington DC, where she also served as an Associate Director of Adolescent Health Programmes at the National Partnership for Women and Families 
formerly the Women's Legal Defence Fund, and as a Women's Health uh, Law and Public Policy Fellow at the National Women's Law Centre. So Professor Roche, thank you so much for kindly participating in um, our seminar this afternoon and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very generous welcome. Um, much appreciated. So thank you, Leah, Joanna, and Siobhan for hosting this session. And thanks also to the Transnational Justice Institute. And a very special thanks. I'm, I'm pleased to be with you, uh, with you today at the kind invitation of Professor Rory O'Connell. Um, thank you, Rory. I'm, Rory and I met 20 years ago when I was a researcher at Queens. And, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to participate in this session today. Um, so it's perhaps an understatement that the legal terrain of abortion is changing in the United States. You had a little bit of background from Siobhan and, and thank you for that context. Uh, I agree it was very poignant and, um, and uh, set, it set the con sets the tone for the conversation quite nicely uh, because the US Supreme Court is poised to abandon constitutional protection for abortion rights, allowing states to ban abortion before viability. And states like Texas have new and ingenious ways to ban pre-viability abortion right now and are doing so presently through procedural maneuvering. So that's one side of the story. Um, but a, a maybe a less well-known aspect of US abortion law is how practical access is changing as well. So me medication abortion is the two drug regimen that ends a pregnancy before 10 or 11 weeks. Uh, the growth of virtual clinics, which medication, which is which offer medication abortion through telehealth, follows co a court decision that temporarily enjoined the Food and Drug Administration's restrictions on the first drug in a medication abortion, mifepristone. So today, I want to tell you a little bit about that litigation and pepper in the description of the cases and laws that have more recently made headlines in the United States. So I'm gonna focus my conversation on the legal developments that have expanded telehealth against the backdrop of Supreme Court cases and state laws that seek to ban almost all abortion um, and then open it up uh, for what I hope is a conversation about what some of these developments might mean. A little background first. Uh, so in March, 2020, I decided to take a break from abortion law, <laughs> I decided to take a break from writing about abortion. And then with the onset of the pandemic, states started suspending abortion in the name of public health. Texas and Arkansas, for example, which have enacted every possible abortion restriction, uh, now sought to treat abortion like cosmetic surgery. Needless to say, I lost all resolve for my previous plan. Uh, I was, I started writing and thinking about what those suspensions meant in light of US case law on public health in abortion, for abortion rights. And I was struck by how quickly the research community provided evidence of the effects on abortion access and the effects on communities relying on that care. For example, studies on where people traveled when clinics closed. It was information that sought to humanize and contextualize the cost of the, of the legal suspensions. And then came the Supreme Court case, June Medical Services in summer 2020. Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who is not uh, particularly known for being a fan of, uh, of abortion rights in the United States, was the fifth vote to strike down a near replica of an admitting privileges law that had been invalidated by the Supreme Court in a previous case, Whole Women's Health. 
The Chief Justice's opinion emphasized the need to protect stare decisis, but his concurrence also acknowledged the burdens imposed by enforcement of the privileges requirement, requiring doctors to have privileges to admit uh, patients into a nearby hospital. And even under his narrow version of the constitutional test for abortion restrictions, what's called the undue burden standard, he held the law was unconstitutional based on the factual record. So one reason I mentioned that is for the last year and a half, there has been a groundswell of public health research that has contributed to a number of courts understanding of what burdens abortion restrictions impose. Contemporary research hubs are not neutral in regard to abortion. Their, their mission is to produce rigorous research demonstrating the cost of anti-abortion laws. They are part of a well-funded, well-organized infrastructure led by academics who are expert in public health, demography, and epidemiology. And one of the reasons I mentioned that today is that research is explicit in its draw from international human rights framings, referencing standards like those set forth by the World Health Organization. The purpose of generating research on the effects of abortion restrictions is explicitly tethered to the larger goals of reducing health disparities and health inequalities. So the, the, the case I wanna to talk to you about today in some depth is ACOG versus the FDA, which is the case I mentioned that temporarily lifted the FDA's requirement that the first drug in a medication abortion, mifepristone, be dispensed in person during the pandemic. So uh, a little bit more background. The FDA applies a drug, and, and I'm sorry if this is a, a little bit too detailed, but I'm very nerdy about this and I'm a little bit obsessed with these regulations. So the F, apologies. Uh, the FDA applies a drug safety program to mifepristone. It's called a Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or RIMS. Uh, the FDA issues a RIMS for drugs it deems potentially risky and in need of monitoring. Uh, it can, uh, it can, uh, it can uh, in addition to a RIMS, it can issue uh, what's called an Elements to Assure Safe Use. And that type of restriction can circumscribe, circumscribe uh, distribution. So in short, the FDA requires that patients collect mifepristone, remember medication abortion, before 10 weeks of pregnancy at a healthcare facility, a hospital, a clinic, or medical office. And the effect of this in-person requirement has been to prohibit retail pharmacies and mail order prescription services from distributing mifepristone. The FDA, however, does not mandate that the provider be physically present when the drug regimen is collected or taken by the patient. So as more context, of the 20,000 drugs regulated by the FDA and the 17 with the same restrictions, mifepristone is the only one that patients must retrieve at a healthcare facility, but may take without physician supervision. In fact, the FDA permits mailing to patients' homes the exact same drug compound in higher doses and larger quantities for treatment of other conditions. Shortly before the pandemic, the onset of the pandemic, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, brought suit with four of the parties to enjoin this in-person dispensation. ACOG argued that applying the requirement contradicts substantial evidence of the drug's safety and is completely ineffectual in protecting patients. And a federal court agreed. It issued a nationwide injunction of the in-person requirement for the duration of the pandemic. The court held that the FDA requirement imposed an undue burden 
because requiring travel to a hospital clinic or medical office to pick up a drug that can be taken at home offers no medical benefit. That is, retrieving mifepristone at a healthcare facility does not reduce the likelihood of a complication. Uh, typically, the provider will not be present when the abortion begins, and the patient will not be at a healthcare facility to receive any follow-up care. Any possible benefit is outweighed by the burdens imposed, such as increased risk of exposure to COVID-19, the cost of travel, delay, and other logistical difficulties. Maybe more notably, the opinion illustrates how abortion restrictions interact with other health stressors to perpetuate inequalities, inequalities that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. The FDA's policy falls heaviest on the predominant populations of abortion seekers in the United States, who are people that live just above or below the federally populated level and are people of color. So in making the connection between inaccessible abortion, income, and race, the district court and the experts it cited drew heavily from the public health research I mentioned earlier. Specifically, it built off studies such as the Turnaway Study, the first in the United States longitudinal data on individuals who sought but could not obtain an abortion. The study's authors, uh, the, the study's authors concluded that people who were denied abortion versus those who had an abortion uh, experienced worse health, higher poverty rates, and higher levels of public assistance over the following five years. Uh, this case came before the Supreme Court uh, in early last, early in this year, and the Supreme Court stayed the district court's injunction, essentially reinstated the FDA's rule. Justice Sotomayor wrote a powerful dissent calling the court's reinstatement callous, cruel, and an undue burden. Last spring though, after the election of uh, President Biden and with new leadership at the FDA, the agency exercised its enforcement discretion and has not been requiring in-person dispensation for the last, since April, for the last, for the last many months. And announced, the FDA announced that it would review the elements of the mifepristone rims by the end of the year. Indeed, the FDA is in, uh, expected to rewrite some of those rules or announce a new direction as early as, as soon as next week. And that review will rely on information provided by the sponsors of the drug uh, in a new drug application, but also on numerous published studies like those generated in the UK, for example, that show mifepristone is very safe as is telehealth for medication abortion. So that's where I wanna just spend a moment um, because I think that the, the, the emergence of virtual clinics has received less attention than for instance, the Mississippi 15 week ban or, or the Texas law I'll describe in a moment. So after the FDA's decision to lift the in-person collection requirement, uh, virtual clinics proliferated. So I'm gonna give you the example of a clinic called Abortion on, on Demand. It's the first large-scale telehealth abortion service run by a US-based provider. Um, so what happens is an automated asynchronous intake is followed by an online appointment with a physician and an informed consent process that uses a pre-recorded video. The patient does a virtual chat and the entire process from counseling to termination uh, to the completion of the abortion takes between two to five days. It also costs about $300 less than a clinic-based procedure. Already, Abortion on Demand operates in 21 states, along with organizations like Genuity and Aid Access, 
and it's going to expand to 27 states in it by the end of this year. Plan C, a nonprofit that works with physicians certified to prescribe medication abortion, um, has been mailing the regimen to patients and operates in additional six states. So that's just to say, one aspect that you might not be as familiar with is how that practical, how practical access to early abortion is changing. But I want to be clear that there are significant challenges uh, to this, uh, to the landscape of early abortion in the United States. For one, telehealth depends on various forms of privilege, utilizing smartphones, having a stable internet connection, or having an uncomplicated pregnancy, which because of US health disparities is more likely the case for the wealthier and for, and for those who are white. For another, about half of the states will not permit teleabortion. This corresponds with the states that will ban or substantially limit abortion services if the Supreme Court abandons or further eviscerates constitutional protection for abortion. And there is reason to believe that will happen in 2022. So last week on December 1st, the Supreme Court heard a case concerning Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion. The court could uphold a ban before viability, overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned, Parent Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The the case that announced the undue burden standard that's applied by courts today. Um, or the court could further water down the undue burden test to the point of rationality review, thus permitting some or almost all pre-viability abortions. Uh, and the fact that the Supreme Court has permitted the Texas ban, SB8, to go into effect through procedural maneuvering does not bode well for the future of constitutional abortion rights. So SB8, is plainly unconstitutional under Casey, under Roe, under a current case law. And what it does is it circumvents that a pre-enforcement injunction on those constitutional grounds by giving private citizens the power to sue for $10,000 per termination. Any provider or anyone who aids and abets a provider performing an abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. We can have a conversation in Q&A about the problems of, of talking in terms of, of detection of a fetal heartbeat, but that's roughly around six weeks. So in a post-Roe and Casey world, hostile states have and will try to further restrict abortion inside and from outside the state. And there are any number of examples that can come to mind. State laws that attempt to restrict travel or limit out-of-state providers from prescribing medication abortion, and states like Texas are already legislating, and Texas is uh, featuring very prominently in, in this presentation, but I'm truly not trying to pick on Texas. Um, maybe they deserve it. Uh, states like Texas are already, uh, already legislating to restrict medication abortion generally, such as banning medication abortion after seven weeks, a law that also went into effect last week. Finally, even with remote care, the need for clinical spaces for abortion past 10 or 11 weeks or when a patient is not a candidate for telehealth will not disappear. I wanna leave you though with the thought that because of its design and based on how it's implemented, teleabortion, mailing medication abortion, delivery of medication abortion through, uh, through virtual means could be a vehicle for delivering care across state lines. And we're seeing a, a a renewed energy on the part of the federal government like, uh, supporting the proposed Women's Health Protection Act uh, to try to keep states from limiting travel or enacting rules that freeze remote care or punish self-managed abortion care. 
So I'm gonna, what will remain in the midst of this legal uncertainty, um, I think is a problem of resources. And here, I think we can talk about how movements rooted in health justice and reproductive justice and human rights can work through advocates, researchers, and lawyers to redistribute those, those scarce resources that enable low-income people in hostile states to access abortion care. And I'd like to think about with you how movements such as those rooted in human rights can empower people to disseminate information about abortion access in the face of a Supreme Court that has, a, has overturned Roe and Casey or has, um, in effect, um, um, eviscerated abort constitutional abortion rights. But those are questions I'm going to leave for discussion, and I, I'll, I'll thank you. Uh, I'll thank you in advance for your questions. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Ruscha, for your extremely insightful and very informative contribution. And no doubt our audience will want to continue the conversation on the matters that you've addressed, um, particularly in terms, I know, uh, with the matter of the law in Texas and what's effectively a bounty system in place um, for members of the public to be paid to effectively report, uh, sorry, report information they're aware of with regards to abortion access. So we just like to remind the audience, please, that we are now opening our question and answer session and um, again we would just like to encourage you to please submit your questions using the chat function on Zoom um, where my colleague and co-chair uh, will then present them. Um, but I suppose in, in the absence of any, oh we have got a question from Marissa. Well, I'll kick us off while other people are formulating some questions. Um, thank you very much Rachel for that very uh, informative and uh, fascinating uh, presentation. Um, so I'm going to, uh, my question will ask you to crystal ball gaze, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned how Chief Justice Roberts had um, upheld stare decisis in some of these cases. And I'm just wondering, do you, do you have any predictions as to how the, that will play out in terms of the nine judges on the Supreme Court um, as these cases come to be decided on the merits? Will stare decisis win out? It's a great question. So I listened to the oral argument uh, last Wednesday and I, before listening to the argument, I thought that a likely outcome would be that the Supreme Court issued, so the question before the Supreme Court is, can states ban abortion before viability? Um, what Casey was clear about was that a, a, a ban on abortion, a, a total ban uh, before, the uh, before the viability line was, that was unconstitutional. That's one way, that's how Casey has been read by almost all courts. Um, so Mississippi passing the 15 week ban is an attempt to test that application. Um, and the court has two options. Um, it could, uh, well, it has three. It could say the law is unconstitutional and Mississippi shouldn't ban abortion at 15 weeks and yay Casey. But the fact that the court took this case suggests it's not going to do that because it's pretty settled that viability was had that kind of line drawing function. So many people think that the court is going to, could, to, could take two paths. Um, it could 
overturn Roe versus Wade and upset stare decisis. Um, it could issue an opinion that says why Roe and Casey were wrongly decided when they were decided, why there are factors that mitigate against stare decisis, and why a new approach is merited. Um, or it could say, well, we reread Casey, and Casey was never really about viability. It was about undue burden, but undue burden doesn't have to be tethered to viability. So the 15-week uh, ban stands because it so happens that in Mississippi, you can't get an abortion past 16 weeks anyway, because the one provider won't provide them past that point. So it's really not that undue of a burden. Uh, viability is not important. We have a new standard. Okay, that's a long-winded way to say before listening on December 1st, I thought that um, the latter was probably more likely, that the court would and the six justices that are poised to abandon, uh, abandon stronger, protectional, uh, protect, stronger constitutional protection for abortion would say, well, Casey's never really about viability. Um, water it down to the point where basically anything goes, right? Absent of just irrational, laugh out loud, state restriction, states could by and large ban abortion. And I think that's actually what, where Justice Roberts is to your question. I think that Justice Roberts doesn't think that Roe or Casey were necessarily wrongly decided when decided, but that the usefulness of a viability standard is, uh, has, it has, it's, the viability standard has outlived its usefulness and produces more litigation and confusion than it's worth. But <laughs> I now think that the court is just gonna overturn Roe. Uh, I think that it's going to just abandon Roe and Casey. The arguments, the questions that Justice Barrett, the newest addition to the court, um, that Justice Thomas and that Justice Kavanaugh were asking, um, along with Alito and Gorsuch, just the five votes that you need. They don't need just Chief Justice um, uh, Roberts to overturn Roe. They were, they were asking a number of questions just in the vein of your question. Well, you know, what about our cases in which we did uh, abandon stare decisis for principled reasons? Well, are, isn't this like the, those situations? Um, well, is it really an undue burden if you can't have an abortion? Couldn't you uh, put a child up for adoption once born? Aren't there safe haven laws? Just a number of questions that suggest they were really, those justices were laser-like focused on is it really that big a deal <laughs> if we overturn Roe and Casey? And so I left listening thinking, I am not optimistic that Roe is going to, Roe and Casey remains good law after the summer of 2022. While we're waiting, could I ask a question, um, Rachel? And it's just, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, about humanizing the impact of some of these changes. And in the South of Ireland, the referendum, there was a deliberate strategy to humanize, um, you know, humanize the impact of the lack of, you know, a lack of um, abortion services and legislation and rights. So I wonder, could you say a little bit more about that in the States, to what extent campaigners have used, you know, have thought about and really tried to change attitudes, I suppose, you know, use humanizing stories and the impact of um, 
legislation and so on that um, you, you know that could compare to the Irish situation. I'm I'm delighted that you brought that up, and I meant to say um, that uh, if you know if there's time in the Q and A, I would I'd be thrilled to talk about. Um, changes in uh, abortion law, both in the Republic and in Northern Ireland, which has seen pretty dramatic changes um, as we were chatting about in the practice session. Um, but so I think movements humanizing uh, the cost of abortion have been key and they have been in concert with uh, very sophisticated and rigorous research that documents those costs. And it, I think it's a, it's a, it's a movement that is, that it is, has grounded itself in a perspective, an emergent perspective of health justice. So um, in addition to reproductive justice, which is thinking about reproductive rights over the course of a life spectrum beyond abortion, but also um, uh, uh, you know, takes up issues such as sterilization, contraceptive use, and like uh, pregnancy and post, postpartum care, um, has tried to, to think about those real world impacts. So uh, just to your question, I'd, I'd, I'd point to the Turnaway study, which I mentioned, which is, is, is a, fascinating, um, a fascinating study that clearly documents that most people who seek a termination in the United States already have children. Most of them are, are low income or poor as defined by federal guidelines and most of them seek abortion overwhelmingly so because they cannot afford the children that they have and so having another child puts them further in debt further in poverty and has real world consequences for not only their physical health more of it more people are more likely to experience uh, deterioration of their physical health but also their mental and financial health. And so it's a long-term set of consequences. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the movement in the, 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 the movement supporting abortion rights in the United States has really tried to focus on, on that research because in part of the undue burden test. These are, this is the burden. Um, and what was disconcerting, and I'm sorry if I'm talking too much, just coming up. Um, what was disconcerting about the December 1st argument in Dobbs last week is this suggestion that pregnancy itself is not a burden. Why not just give a child up for adoption? Why not use a safe haven law and deposit an infant in a safe haven uh, spot as if pregnancy was a costless, beneficial exercise that didn't have, doesn't have its own set of physical and uh, other real world implications. So to your point, it, that, that, human, that humanization has been critically important uh, for um, movements for, uh, uh, for supporting abortion. I'll just add that you know, the, the movements that are anti-abortion also seek to humanize the cost of abortion. They also you know, have produced research and have a, a, a set of arguments about uh, fetal pain and about uh, deterioration of women's mental health after abortion. And, uh, and, and that also came up last week in the Dobbs case, this kind of battle of, of what's more harmful, the abortion or the, the inaccessibility of abortion. So I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a great question. Um, it's been vital in the United States. And we haven't had some of the same, it's, it's not been a part in the last couple of years, but I know that there's a live debate here around abortion for purposes because of uh, fatal fetal anomaly. And 
when that, that, you know, that humanization was powerful and important when this court was considering um, the ban on a particular method of abortion, um, intact dilation and extraction, uh, which is used in later in a pregnancy to terminate a pregnancy and is primarily used for very wanted pregnancies that will not survive after, you know, after birth or will not, will not survive through the pregnancy. And so the, one of the most powerful pieces of that litigation was a brief uh, submitted to the court, which they ultimately did not find persuasive, uh, of the, the, the mental, physical, and uh, long-term costs to those people who need, long, need abortion uh, after viability uh, because of serious problems with the pregnancy, and what does it mean to have their, their, the, their options limited? Uh, what, it, what, what are the costs that they bear uh, when those restrictions apply? So, Thank you. We have a question here. Um, have there been any attempts um, by pro-choice activists to expand or strengthen rights to abortion in case or on grounds other than privacy, Roe? So if Roe is abandoned, are there other potential grounds within the Constitution to re-establish such rights being pursued or considered by pro-choice activists? That's a great question. I think some of that will... So there hasn't been historically, and, hist and historically, the uh, another vein for uh, constitutional abortion rights beyond substantive due process, so beyond the 14th Amendment liberty privacy referenced in the question, would be equal protection, that um, an equality-based argument. So this is the type of argument that many will, many will recognize that, for instance, Ruth Bader Ginsburg championed very early in her career as an ACLU lawyer. Um, and that has not gone anywhere <laughs> uh, uh, before the court. But if, if the court abandons Roe, maybe there would be renewed interest in uh, thinking about an equal protection uh, uh, challenge, uh, given that the, the, the six members are, are ready to eviscerate or strike down privacy justifications for abortion, it, it seems to me unlikely that the Supreme Court would, would find an equality basis for abortion rights. But that said, there is renewed energy and movement around an equal rights amendment. And so that if, you know, the question might look different, maybe with a different court in a different time, but also with uh, the addition of an equal rights amendment uh, to the constitution. I think the best bet for abortion rights in the United States post Dobbs will be state constitutions um, that can protect rights beyond what the constitution of the United States offers. Okay, we have another um, question here is, what, what observations do you have on the role of international human rights standards when we compare the US to Ireland and Northern Ireland? It's a great question. And I have to say hello to David Russell. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I know as well. He's that was David. That was David's question, yes. Nice to see you in the participant list, David. I hope you're well. Um, so uh, I think it's, you know, I think that uh, one uh, interest of mine has been what international human rights has done to bolster uh, movements around uh, reproductive justice and uh, abortion rights. 
And I think that um, it, they it, in short, it's been incredibly important for liberalization in various countries. It's been less pronounced in the United States, to be honest. Um, courts have been less receptive to comparative and international arguments in the field of abortion law. And in fact, um, just as an anchor for a conversation last week, um, Justice Kavanaugh, you know, read off, you know, the various countries that uh, make the United States abortion law an outlier in being um, too much more liberal than the rest of the world. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but just butchered compared to international law. Absolutely, I think without context of. Uh, because the United States has been at the forefront of constitutional rights for abortion, but is certainly not one of the most liberal regimes, uh, particularly not if you live in Texas, as I, as I mentioned. So, um, so I think it's had less influence in the United States, but I think international human rights thinking has been incredibly important to the Irish and Northern Irish context um, and in Northern Ireland. And um, I think that the, 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 the kind of support at the international groups like CEDAW, like the World Health Organization, um, the concentrated thinking about the importance of reproductive rights to women's health, equality, dignity, privacy, um, has, has really made an impact uh, uh, globally. And so um, I, I think that it's been a powerful, a powerful tool um, for those who have been, uh, who have advanced uh, liberalization in abortion laws. Um, I'd also just note that the U.S., one thing that now a number of people are saying in the U.S. context is maybe, you know, maybe it's not such a bad thing if the court overturns Roe and Casey, and then we get back to legislative approaches or um, mm -hmm. more public referendum style approaches that support abortion rights. It sounds, it's it's a risky argument to make and you mm -hmm. don't know what's going to happen and you're going to have what you have now, which is a country that's deeply divided uh, in terms of access. Some places having no provider whatsoever, some, some places having uh, much better uh, services. But um, there has been that thinking that, hey, why don't we look to these legislative moments in other places and start thinking about what the US can learn from other jurisdictions um, that like South Africa that have legislated abortion rights. That's very interesting. Thank you, Rachel. That's at least that's a little, a little glimmer of optimism. <laughs> I, my, my, my friends and colleagues say that I, you know, I, I keep having this spin on, you know, but practical access is changing and movements are, are, are changing the, the map for abortion access. And they're like, no, it's all doom and gloom. <laughs> well, I, I had, certainly hadn't heard of the practical access that, you know, the, um, you know, those virtual clinics. That's very interesting. Um, so I'm not sure. I don't think we have any more questions in the chat, but I don't. I don't wonder, does anybody else on the panel like to finish off with another question before we close? I may I? Yes, of course. Yes. Um, and thanks, Rachel. And really, uh, I mean, I could ask four or five questions, which might be a bit uh, self-indulgent, um, but I'll maybe just ask one, which is. Um, and it's again, it's trying to put a spin, if you like, on this. Uh, let's imagine that 
So the context is, and I'm not very familiar with it, but President Biden, of course, established this commission to look at reforms of the Supreme Court. Um, and part of the issue here, as somebody has dabbled in comparative constitutional law, is the very odd design of the Supreme Court of the United States, which is lifetime tenure and presidents making appointments based on when somebody happens to die or retire, um, which means that President Trump made, was it three appointments? Um, you know, in four years, and uh, uh, I'm not sure how many Obama managed to make in eight years. Was it one or two even? So Trump appointed Kavanaugh and um, Barrett. And, and Gorsuch. Then, yeah. Was was Gorsuch a Trump? Yes, you're right. And Gorsuch was Trump. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Obama appointed Sotomayor and Kagan. Yeah, uh, but I mean that's all. If you look. Yeah, it's quite random then and political in terms of how, and to an outsider, the Supreme Court of the United States, you know, there are many constitutional lawyers that will say we no longer take the Supreme Court of the United States seriously as a court um, because of these design issues and the impact of them. So I'm wondering if, um, you know, if Casey and Roe are overturned, would that also then create an impetus to look more seriously at reform of the Supreme Court model? I think so. I mean, I think um, last week, the questions that Sotom Justice Sotomayor asked, her focus was really, um, how could anybody take us seriously <laughs> if we overturned Roe Casey? I mean, she said, could she had this very uh, strong language, you know, could we ever erase the stench? And she used the word the stench that uh, would permeate this court if we decided, because there's been a change in personnel, that the uh, precedent that we've upheld case after case in some iteration for decades is was wrongly decided at the time it was decided. So I think it does call into question uh, the, the there will be a backlash. I think it. Um, I think it will cast the court in more political terms, um, and I actually think that's why you see Chief Justice Roberts being so focused on stare decisis. I think he has his um, sights set on you know what is the history, what happens next uh, in this national conversation. But but I think that's right. I think it emboldens the call. It, it's it strengthens the calls for court reform. Thank you. Um, Rory, you can have another one if you like, out of your many or other questions. <laughs> There's no more in the chat. So if you'd like to ask another one before uh, Leah, or Leah, you're going to ask one, sorry. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, Rory, if you want to go ahead, I don't mind. Oh, okay, well, thank you very much. Um, my question more relates to um, access to abortion healthcare services and um, particularly with relation to the operation of exclusion zones outside facilities and um, healthcare facilities. In Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, there have been issues particularly ongoing throughout the two years duration of the pandemic whereby protesters have gathered outside healthcare facilities, um, including hospitals with 
very graphic imagery and um, really have created a, an environment of hostility or intimidation, which has obviously affected those seeking services provided within as well as staff who provide those services. And that has therefore led to discussion in both jurisdictions around introducing legislation to provide for exclusion zones. And I'm conscious there are similar issues across various states in the United States. So I just would want to know, um, Rachel, your perspective around introducing legislation for exclusion zones and particularly in the American context where free speech and, and protest and, and gathering of protesters is very particularly um, held as important and important right and civil liberty. Thank you. Um, I think that, uh, so the issue has been addressed by legislation in the U.S., as you know, by the FACE Act, and it tries to create a buffer around uh, uh, clinics or uh, where services are provided. Um, it doesn't, but it, because of our First Amendment protections under the Constitution, it, it does not limit what people can say or the images they use, it, it truly just creates a buffer. And there have been a, a number of challenges to state laws that create that build off face um, that have been successfully struck down because of first amendment concerns. And then there's been challenges to face that have not been as been successful also on first amendment grounds. And so I think that it has been important in terms of um, trying to create some physical safety around the entrance of clinics. Um, but I don't, I, I'm not sure if what it's done to de-intensify the protest outside of that buffer zone in clinics. And so, you know, part of, um, so I think the leg legislation can help. I think that legislation can mitigate some of that, um, some of the disruption that protests might cause for people who are seeking to enter clinics. Um, but I'd say that one reason that the um, virtual care is so popular is that, of course, you don't have to go to a clinic. Mm -hmm. You can have medication abortion, if you qualify, mailed to you and have take, you know, take the regimen in, in the privacy of your own home or, or elsewhere. And so that's been one thing that has really helped the helped virtual services thrive is that there is still such intensity of protest outside many abortion mm -hmm. providers in the United States. Thank you. I don't think we have any more questions. So um, Rory, do you have another one or shall we um, um, ask later just close or? Well, maybe just then one of the questions if I was intrigued by the reference to state constitutions and the possibility of litigation under rights in those. And I wondered if you'd say a little bit more about that. And in particular, um, I, I mean, the, the future and maybe indeed the present is um, the federal version of what we call a postcode lottery. Uh, that access entirely depends on where you happen to live and if it's in a more or less liberal or restrictive state. Um, so the prospect for invoking state constitutional rights, um, is that actually realistic in the states that are already predisposed to be restrictive? Right. I, I think it's a great question. So it's, it, and it refers to a little bit of the regional division that I mentioned that you see um, 
So there are states that if Roe is overturned or if there's no constitutional restriction on pre-viability bans, they are going to ban abortion as soon as the decision comes out. They have what we call trigger laws that say, if Roe is ever overturned, this law criminalizing almost all abortion goes into effect immediately. Um, or they'll act through their legislatures to do so. Um, and th that's about, you know, that's people estimate that's maybe about 10 to 15 states. Um, and then you'll have a few more states that probably legislate to restrict abortion, not all abortion, but a lot of abortion. And so you're looking at roughly half the country that might have, might pass its, their own version of uh, restrictive abortion laws. To your question, there are states like Iowa where their Supreme Court has said, you can't pass that law. Our state constitution has a robust equality and due process right, which encompasses the right to abortion before viability. And so there will be some states, even in, with hostile legislatures, that uh, have state constitutions written in a way that could be interpreted to protect state abortion rights. But you're right to assume that um, in other states in which uh, there that are not poised to legislate against abortion, there's probably, there will be more will, and we've seen this already in Massachusetts and Vermont and in California, um, legislatures will act to extend abortion rights, um, to pass state laws like in Massachusetts, the Roe Act, which essentially codify uh, a Casey type standard or a set of, uh, or abortion right before certain, for any reason before a certain time in pregnancy and then for reasons after a certain time in pregnancy as a matter of state law. And in those states, you'd suspect that the state Supreme Courts will, will not strike them down. Also an open question, you could see an outlier where that happens. Uh, but so you'll have a very patchwork, a very regionalized system mostly on the coasts of uh, abortion access protected by statute or by interpretation of a state constitution or not, or not law saying nothing about it at all and those services being offered. And then in the Midwest, Midwest and South, a concentration of states that have banned abortion. So the other reason I decided to talk about medication abortion and remote care today is you can see a near future where crossing borders is everything <laughs> about access. And so um, that makes the proliferation of mailed uh, medication abortion or virtual services even more, I think, important um, and even a, 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 a more interesting piece of the puzzle. Thank you so much, Rachel. Those, the, your answers have been so enlightening and I, for one, certainly have a much more nuanced understanding of what is happening in the US. So um, thank you for your for your um, your answers. And I'm going to pass back to Leah. And I don't know, Siobhan, if you would like to say something as well before, before we close. I just like to thank Rachel and you and Leah for a really stimulating discussion. It's um, been really uh, so detailed. Um, I had no idea of all these permutations and um, configurations. So thank you. Thank you.
thank you very much. Um, so thank you very much, Joanna, for moderating our Q&A session. And thank you also to our audience members for submitting your questions and contributing to what has been a very interesting and informative discussion, particularly with regards to our examination of constitutionalism, international human rights standards, and how it's interpreted and applied in various jurisdictions and comparative analysis. And I think we can safely say that um, following on from Professor Richet's uh, contribution and the discussion thereafter, it's very clear there will be issues with regards to the accessing of reproductive services and recognition and protection of reproductive rights in the United States at both federal and state level, regardless of the outcome in the Mississippi case currently before the Supreme Court. But equally very apparent is that there is a strong risk we may uh, witness the overturning of Roe against Wade in the future months ahead. And I think all of us on the call this afternoon will be following that case with great interest. So just to conclude, um, thank you very much again, Professional Richet, for giving up your time this afternoon and providing us with such a comprehensive and insightful um, discussion around the current situation with the legal framework of reproductive rights in the United States and in relation to the Mississippi case. We're very grateful for your time and your insight and our Thanks also to Professor Rory O'Connell and Professor Siobhan Willis for um, being intense today and for your support and organization of this event. So thank you very much to our audience for being in attendance and we hope you have a lovely afternoon and we'll be looking forward to replaying this seminar when it is um, provided online. Thank you. Thank you.